invite you to turn with me to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, there should be a, a black pew Bible in, the, in front of you. Um, and that book of Hosea will be on page 640-something, right about there. I don't remember exactly. Hosea chapter 11. Just to cut to the chase, the key verse of this chapter is verse 9. The second half of it says this, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God is not man. He's not like us in so many ways. One of the key ways is in regard to love. The love of man is fickle. We are like that child that has found a flower, and we pluck it petal by petal and say, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Our love changes by the day. When somebody does something nice, we love them. When somebody does something mean, we don't. When they look beautiful, we love them. When they just wake up, we're not so sure. Our love changes. It rises and falls. Oh, there's some who have faithful love, some who love through thick and thin, who love through the good and bad. But generally, that is rare to find. The love of man changes with the wind. But God is not man. He is holy. To be holy simply means to be set apart. He is different. He is unique. The word holy is what the seraphim use, those angels that surround the throne of God in Isaiah 6, and they never cease to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That's the word that is used to describe our God, the Holy One in your midst. The holiness of God, the uniqueness of God, extends to everything that He is. Everything that He is is unique when compared to what man is. God's holiness extends into all that He is. There is none other like Him. And there really can't be any other like him because he is the creator of everything. He has no beginning and everything else has a beginning. Therefore, God is unlike everything else, at least in the sense that he made everything else and nothing made him. There's a creator and then there's creation. That's a category distinction that you can use for everything that is known. Either it's created or it's the creator. Fall into one of two categories. And there's only one creator, and so there's everything else, the created. In the category of creator, there is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the realm of created, there's everything. Humans, dogs, cats, plants, air, colors, everything else falls in the category of created. And so when you think about God, you have to think about him as holy. He's unique. There's none 
like him. He is a category all to himself. And so the attributes that he possesses are, in a sense, his alone. Well, he does share them with us in some sense. God is kind, and humans can be kind, but God's kindness always transcends our kindness. And so when we think about the love of God, that is an attribute of God that he possesses in a unique way that transcends human love. It's a wonderful theme, the love of God, and it's one that we need to dwell on. It's the holy love of God that we're going to be thinking about for a few moments this morning. I want to ask you a few key questions to start you churning your minds on the subject of this text. But before I ask you the questions, I want to let you know that I'm speaking to believers. That is my intended audience. I'm speaking to those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone who doesn't know Christ as Lord, let me just very quickly let you know that There is a God in heaven, and he is perfect in holiness. He is the one who made everything. He made us, and he made us to be in a relationship with him. He made us to know him, to love him, to serve him, and to obey him. But our very first ancestor, Adam, in the garden, transgressed God's law. He disobeyed God, and as a result, all of humanity has fallen into sin. And you might think, well, it's not fair. Adam sinned, not me. Well, you did sin. Not only were you, in a sense, in Adam, but you have sinned yourself, and so you really are without excuse before God. God's given you a way to live. He's told you to follow him. He has instructed you to love him more than anything else, but we've exchanged his glory for the glory of other things. Every last one of us in this room has done that. And so we are sinners. And the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death. The consequence for our rebellion against God is death. That's why every human being in this world dies. There are millions and there will be billions of funerals because there is sin in the world. You can't escape the reality of sin. Death has entered the world because of sin. But there's something else that's entered the world. That's the Son of God. God sent His Son, the eternal Son of God, who took on flesh about 2,000 years ago. He came into this world. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived under the law of God, and He lived it out perfectly. He never rebelled against God. He never had one bad thought, never said one mean thing. He never disobeyed His parents. He didn't even steal a cookie. He was perfect. In all of his ways, he did what was right. Most of all, he loved God perfectly, which no human being has come even close to doing. Jesus is the righteous one. And God sent him to be righteous. God sent him to be the righteous satisfaction for your sin. God sent him to die a brutal death on a cross as a substitute for you. Jesus Christ came as the perfect man who could step into your place and take the punishment that you deserve so that you can experience life with God instead of death and separation from him. And that proof of that gift that God has given to humanity through the death of Jesus Christ is proven by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the grave and he ascended back into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God as Lord 
and he has all authority in his hands. And now the message is being proclaimed to all people everywhere. Repent. That means turn away from your sin. Acknowledge you're a sinner. Trust that Jesus Christ died for you, and you will receive the gift of eternal life, and you will have the forgiveness of your sins and life with God forever. If you have Christ, if you've turned from your sins, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have him as your own, then you have great and precious promises to you. You have promises like God saying and Christ saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have promises like your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. You have promises like he will work all things together for the good of those who love God. You have promises like God saying that he will send his son back for you to reclaim you as his own. You have promises like a promise of eternal life, which includes no more mourning, no more pain, no more crying anymore. You have promised to be the son or the daughter of your heavenly father. He's promised not to hold your sins against you. Now, if you're in Christ, let me ask you these questions. How confident are you that those promises are true for you? How confident are you that those promises God has made for those who are in Christ, promises of eternal life, of forgiveness of sins, of of an eternity without pain or suffering, of a God who works out everything for your good, how certain are you that those are true for you? Are you confident? If you're confident, why are you confident? If you're not confident, why are you not confident? Are you confident if you are confident? Are you confident, for example, because God has never forsaken you, and so you just assume he never will? You take the past as the proof of the future. Now, that could be a good way to go. There are many reasons why you could be confident, but why won't God forsake you in the future? What makes you confident that he will stick by what he has said to you? Are you confident because God keeps his promises? It's a good reason to be confident, I think. He does. He does what he says he will do. But you ask, why does he do that? Why does he keep his promises? Well, one reason is because God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. God does what he says he will do. But is God just constrained by his nature, that he cannot lie, and so he said that he will do it, and so doggone it, he's going to do it. Is that the way it works? Is God just like a, a force of gravity that just constantly pulls your feet to the ground and just always does it, so it always will? Is that why you're confident? Or if you lack confidence, why do you lack confidence that God will keep his word to you? Do you wonder if God is really there for you? Do you wonder if he really has your back and is really going to come through like he said? Do you wonder if he has the power to do it? You just see so much else in this world that's competing for the the accomplishment of his purposes, and you wonder, can he do it? Do you wonder if he has the wisdom to do it? You see that there's so much to figure out. How can he possibly work this for good? It's so complicated. There's nothing good that could come out of this. Do you wonder about his wisdom? Do you wonder if he has a plan? Is he just winging it, maybe? He's kind of taking it as it comes. 
Do you wonder, perhaps, if you might just mess it up and ruin it all? Do you wonder if you might just take the wrong step and that would be it and God would just say, that's enough, I've had it with you? Do you wonder if he will retract his word? Do you wonder, do you just plain wonder if he wants to? Maybe he doesn't want to anymore. Maybe he doesn't want to keep his promises to you. Maybe he's seen enough. He's not willing. What confidence do you have that God will not forsake you? We could put it another way. What should be your confidence that God will not forsake you? Certainly, there could be lots of answers to that question. You can come up with a hundred good reasons for why God should not forsake you that are in agreement with his word. We should trust that God will come through with his promises because he is trustworthy. We certainly should think that. And we should heartily embrace the reality that God does not change, and so he will not change his word. If he has said something, he will do it. But I want to suggest to you that there is something much more personal about the reason for which God keeps his promises to you. And I think that you will find the reason that God keeps his promises to you in such a personal way will comfort your heart if you embrace these truths. There's something that doesn't just make us respond in trust to the Lord, finding him trustworthy. It's something about God and his nature that makes us come to him humbly in reverence and awe that he would treat us in such a way. It's when you realize that God is not keeping his promises to you out of a begrudging commitment or just to maintain his reputation that he does not lie. It's when you understand that he keeps his promises to you because he loves you that you will have the right kind of confidence in his promises. It is his love for those who are in Christ that glues his promises to you. And I want you to see the heart of God in this text of Hosea. And you might find this a strange place to look for it because in the book of Hosea, if you've been here for even a week in the book of Hosea, all you've heard from here is judgment, repent, judgment, wrath, condemnation. And we need to understand those things. What a strange place to find love. And yet here it is in all of its brilliant glory. We've been wading into the sea of judgment, but we're going to find that there's this riptide of love that is going to carry you into the sea, not of judgment, but of love. Hosea, yes, it's a book that calls people to repentance. It's a book spoken to a stubborn and stiff-necked people. Yes, it's a book that shows God's wrath, but it's a book that also shows us his great love, and I want you to see that. I want you to see the love of God in action, but also in affection. The affection of God's heart for his people. It's not this 
mushy kind of love, an infatuation, but it is an affectionate love. And we'll see that in the language of this text. Let's see the love of God that keeps God's promises glued to his people. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, And devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Let me give you some theological and historical background to Hosea 11 that I think will be helpful to you in considering this topic of God's love for his people and keeping him glued to his promises. The beginning of God's relationship with the nation of Israel is described there in verse 1. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So God considers, in a sense, the beginning of his relationship with this nation of Israel as a father-son relationship. The history of Israel goes back all the way to the start of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram to be the father of the nation of Israel and to be the blessing by which the whole world is going to come. And you know the story, if you've been around the Bible at all, Abraham's descendants grew in multitude. They went to Egypt, and uh, there they populated even more greatly And they ended up in slavery in Egypt. But you want to see this in Exodus chapter 4. As God really begins to deal with the people of Israel as a nation. In Exodus 4, the people are a multitude now, millions of Israelites in slavery in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, has God speaking to Moses is describing what the ministry of Moses is going to be. He's going to send Moses to Pharaoh, and in verse 22 of Exodus 4, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. 
This is the beginning of understanding the relationship between Israel and Yahweh as a relationship between a father and a son. The relationship was a relationship based on the choosing of God to adopt a people as his own. And it would possess the dynamic of a father-son relationship. And so we just draw that out for a moment and think, what is it about a father-son relationship that is to be represented by the relationship between Israel and Yahweh? They were given a special relationship with God, one that they would receive his laws and his instructions. And those laws and instructions would protect the people of Israel. But it's more than just this kind of legal framework, a legal relationship. It was to be a tender one of a father towards a son and a son towards a father. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord said to his people, A son honors his father. If then I am a father, where is my honor? Israel was to relate to the Lord God as a father and to treat him with the honor that was due to him. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Children, honor your father and mother. And that was based on the honor that God was to receive from the Israelites as a son is supposed to honor his father. It's not just a a rote honoring. It's a real relationship honoring to recognize he is the father and I am the son. But on the other side of things, the father was one who is tender and compassionate and would protect his son. That was the relationship the Lord was to have to Israel. Psalm 103, verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So from the very start, when God looked at Israel as his firstborn son, he looked at them as a nation that he wanted to care for, to show compassion toward, to take care of, protect, and love as a father would do towards his son. So children, honor the father. The father show compassion, protection, loving kindness towards his children. That was to be the relationship. And God named Israel his son when he brought them out of Egypt under the yoke of slavery. And he treated them with compassion. He loved them. He protected them. He provided for them. Remember the manna? In the wilderness, the water, the quail, he protected them. Their sandals didn't wear out. Their tunics didn't get holes. They were provided for, and he brought them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He did that all as a father who doesn't give children a fish when they, or a snake when they ask for a fish. He is a loving father. That's the framework of what this relationship was to be like. Now, God chose Israel, not because there is anything special in them, but because he set his love upon them. Fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 7. The reason for the compassionate love of the Lord that he had for Israel, where it came from, was not because he saw them and saw how great they were in numbers, how populous they were. It was because He made a promise that stemmed from his loving heart. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. What's the reason for God's love for Israel? It's nothing in them. It's everything in God. As one brilliant theologian said, the reason God loves is because he loves. He set his love on Israel not because of anything lovely in them, not because they're a mighty nation, not because of their numbers and quality. It was because he made a promise, and that promise was rooted in love, and that was what was going to stick that promise to those people. It was his love. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. The Lord sits enthroned in heavens. He sits above everything. He is the creator of all, and yet he set his heart of love on these people, which glues his promise to them. Yet the Lord knew when he chose this group of people that they would stray from him. He knew it from the outset. He knew what the lay of the land was going to be like in a couple of hundred years. He knew which path they were going to go down, that they were going to choose rebellion and disobedience to God. Look back at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23. And you'll see that it is the love of God exhibited in his mercy that will determine the future of his relationship with a rebellious people. Listen to this text that basically explains the book of Hosea so far. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 23. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. We've seen that historically. That's what happened. Israel did reject God. They worshiped other gods. And for a generation, they experienced God's judgment as they were sent into exile. It says in verse 28, And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And you could think, well, that's it. That's the end. God's relationship with this nation is just done. It's kaput. It's over. 
But look what it says in verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Do you see the future of Israel? The promise that God has made is connected with his loving mercy. That's what sticks it to people. It's his love. The Lord knew what Israel would do. And yet that wasn't the end. Based on his mercy and his promise, there would be a future. The everlasting love for God's people from God will drive their future. Micah chapter 7 verse 18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Or Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. The whole of Israel's relationship with God, past, present, and future, is based on his love and his promise. Now let's go back to Hosea 11. We'll briefly walk through this and see the unfolding of this love and faithfulness of God. Hosea 11.1 1 begins, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It reminds Israel of the nature of the relationship that he had with Israel from the very start, starting out as the son now, if you know your Bible, you know that this verse is applied to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus says of himself that he came not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And it's applied to Jesus because Jesus uh, was brought to Egypt by his human father, his adoptive father, Joseph, when Herod was trying to destroy Jesus. And so Jesus went into Egypt and then came back out of there. And in doing so, it shows that Jesus is stepping into the shoes of Israel to be the kind of son that Israel should have been so that Israel can receive the kind of promises that God had always promised to them. He steps into their role so that they can receive Jesus' robes of righteousness. Jesus, yes, is the pleasing son of God, but this originally applied to Israel. Israel was the beloved son of God, the one that he brought out of Egypt. And this relationship of a father and a son is developed, as God says in verse 3, that he taught Ephraim to walk. And you can just picture the loving arms of a father helping his child who's just learning that he has feet and what to do with them, stumbling along, and there God is teaching him how to walk. That's what God did with Israel, taught them how to be a nation. He gently gave them his laws. He taught them how to live. He was the one who was there, and when they got tired or they couldn't walk or stumbled, he's the one who picks them up in their, his arms. It's a loving picture of a father 
is compassion. And it says they did not know that I healed them, which implies that he was their physician as well, their father, who saw that they stumbled, that they scraped their elbow. He is the one who scooped them up and tended to their scrape. He healed them. And then in verse 4, changing the metaphor, God describes his relationship to them as one who led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. This is the picture of a farmer gently leading his favored animal, not by some heavy yoke or forced pushing or whip, but gently leading them with cords of kindness. Have you seen those parents that get their kids a backpack, um, their young kids, like toddlers, two or three years old, and the backpack uh, looks like a monkey clinging on the back, and the monkey has a long tail, and the parent holds on to that tail, and so effectively the child's on a leash. Um, I'm not sure I advocate that method of parenting, but you see the, the tender compassion of the parent towards the child by not strapping some big yoke on them, but using some gentle way of leading their child along. It's kind of the picture that God paints for us of leading Israel in a tender way, not a, a harsh way. He is one who has eased the yoke on their jaws. He's taken off the muzzle. He's the one who stoops down and fed them. He's with them there all along the way. And if you read your Old Testament, you'll see, yes, a God who brings judgment, but you'll also see a God who is exceptionally patient and a God who is exceptionally kind, who even feeds people who grumble and complain at him. God acts the role of a father. But Israel does not live out the life of a son. It says in verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. The picture is of a prophet who would be preaching to them and would call them back to their father, but the more they heard it, they're like that teenage son. They have another talk with the father, and it just hardens them even more, no matter how kind the father is being no matter how forgiving, how compassionate, how right that father is being, that teenager just hardens his heart and goes away even more. They go, and instead of worshiping their father, they worship Baals and idols. It's the way that they lived. They rejected him. Well, what would this mean for the relationship? How would God respond to this? Well, God is a God who shows kindness to ten thousands. But he does show wrath as well. And he would judge a generation. In verse 5, it says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. This is talking about the nation that Israel is speak, or that Hosea is speaking to, that generation. They would face exile. They would get removed from the land. But the question comes of what will happen to the nation as a whole. Is it just going to be wiped out? You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? And those cities that were so full of iniquity, 
that God went in Genesis 18 and 19 to go look at those cities and see the horror of what they were doing. And he said that even if there were 10 righteous in those cities, he wouldn't destroy them. Well, there weren't 10 righteous in those cities, and so he utterly destroyed those cities. And they're gone from the face of the earth. They're in the location where one of the lowest places on planet earth is, with the saltiest sea is. It's the Dead Sea in Israel. That's where they were located. And they're never to be built again. They are done with. It's over. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're not cities you can go see. They're gone. And so this evokes the question of this father-son relationship. Is it over? Is God done with it? Is God done with Israel? What will he do? That's where verse 8 comes in. It's almost as if God contemplates his own judgment. As he thinks about what is going to happen to Israel, he says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim were cities along with Sodom and Gomorrah that got consumed. You can see Deuteronomy 29, 23 for that. As God contemplates the judgment that's coming against Israel, he asks these provocative questions. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I make you like those cities that are utterly wiped out? As he thinks about what could come upon them, it says the heart of God recoils within him. His compassion grows warm and tender. God will not wipe out the nation of Israel. He will not take them out in totality. Why? Why will he not do it? Why will he not do it when he has every just reason to just say this nation is done? It's over with. Why will he not execute his burning anger? Why will he not come in total wrath? Why will he not do it? It's because his compassion grows warm within him. Why is that? Well, verse 9. Because I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God's love is not fickle like our love. It's amazing, isn't it? That this holy God, this pure and sinless God, would look at this people that has spurned him again and again, and refuses, and he will refuse to destroy them not just out of a begrudging commitment to his promises, not just because he said he wouldn't, but because he has a heart full of love for them. That's why. It's hard to wrap our minds around the love of God. It's hard for us to think, how can this great, mighty, infinite God have this kind of love? And so he speaks in ways that we can understand. And perhaps you can understand as a father or a mother, if you have children, and you see your children maybe going off the wrong path, and you think, how can I give them up? 
How can I stop being their parent? I can't do it. It's not in me because I love them so much. I will love them until the day they die. I will love my kids to the day they die or I die, no matter what they do. I can't speak for what they do. I don't know what's going to happen down the future. But as a parent, you know you can't stop loving them. God gives you a little snippet of the kind of love he has in his heart by this kind of verbiage. Now, we can't think of it as only human terms because God is not a man, and so his love is not like ours. It's exceptionally more wonderful than any love that we could ever generate for our kids. His love is deeper. His love is wider. His love is more patient. His love is more kind. His love is more pure. His love, in other words, is holy. You can almost hear the exasperated love that God has for his people, but he still can't give them up. And so verse 10, it declares what's going to happen in the future to the nation of Israel. It says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The Lord, like a lion, will roar one day, and his people will hear his voice, and they will come in repentance to him. And it says in Zechariah that they will see the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn over him. They will repent, and God will bring them back. Why will that happen? Because of his love. Now, I want to apply this to us in just a moment, but I want to ask the question, does God still love Israel? Does God still love that nation? Does he still love them? Does he still love them like this text says? Romans 11.28 answers that question for us. Oh, there's a lot to think about as far as what God's relationship is to Israel and how he relates to them now. And let me just say that nobody, Jew or Gentile, will experience the love of God unless they come to him through Jesus Christ. That's a certainty. But to ask the question, will God's love still glue his promises to the nation of Israel? Romans eleven twenty eight. As regards the gospel, this is speaking of national Israel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, that means God's sovereign choice that he will keep them and preserve them. They are what? Beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Does God still love the nation of Israel? Yes, in the sense that he will not utterly forsake that people, but there will always be a remnant and there will be a group of Israelites who will see the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn and they will come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why will that happen? Because God loves them. The God of Israel is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he is the savior of the world, not just of Israel. And so we look to the New Testament for a moment, just for a brief moment, and we find the comforting words for those who are in Christ to know the love of God. So you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. You think that's great for the nation of Israel, but what about us? What about me right here sitting in this pew today? What will glue God's promises to me? Well, look how your relationship with God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, began. In Ephesians 1, 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Every spiritual blessing God has blessed us with in Christ in the heavenly places. That sounds like those promises we were talking about. He's blessed us with those. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's a long time ago. That we should be holy and blameless before him. And then get this, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as what? Sons through Jesus Christ. What are you if you are in Christ? You are a son. How did, or a daughter, how did you get there? You got adopted. How were you adopted? You were predestined. What made God predestine you for that? Love. For some reason, out of the heart of God, he loved you in the same kind of way as he loves Israel. His heart overflows with affection for you. You could not have a bigger love in the universe toward you. His everlasting, nonstop love. Your relationship with him is rooted not just in God keeping his promises because he's not a liar, not just a begrudging commitment to do what he says, but a love for you in Christ is what glues his promise to you. So what is the reason that you should have for your confidence that God will never leave you or forsake you. Why should you have confidence in it? One of the crescendos of Scripture is Romans chapter 8. It's almost as if Paul, the author of Romans, has been writing a symphony and it just reaches its peak right here in Romans 8 as he describes how God is for you. And I want you to hear, beginning in verse 31, this section, this glorious section, which describes all of these promises that God has for you if you're in Christ. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. Now get this. Paul's just laid out all of these things that cannot separate us from God's promises, that cannot take away what he has said to us. But what is it that is going to keep us connected to God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ? What is, are we not going to be separated from ultimately? None of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is the confidence that you should have that God's promises will be glued to you? It's very, very personal. And it's very, very simple. And it's this. God loves you. He loves you as a father loves his child. That's what it is. If you struggle with that kind of doubt, wondering, is this going to work out? Is God going to keep being for me? I messed it up yesterday. I messed it up today. I'm going to mess it up tomorrow. Think, what's going what's to keep him for me? Oh, beloved brothers and sisters, you need to think, meditate on the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. And then you will know he is not going to abandon you because he has an affection for you. Let's pray. Father, you are the Holy One in our midst. We know Isaiah fell in fear before you, and yet from your very altar came the the coal of atonement that touched his lips, that purified him and cleansed him. And Lord, we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom we can have cleansing, forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. And Lord, we marvel at this. Oh Lord, what great love you have shown us. It's bigger than any other love that we could ever see among ourselves. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. Oh, Father, may we spend time this week marveling at the love that you have given us in Christ Jesus, your beloved Son. And Lord, as we're tempted to doubt and think why we should have confidence before you, God, let us not look to ourselves. Oh, Father, please help us not to look to ourselves. Help us to look to you and to your love and faithfulness toward us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.